There must be lights burning brighter somewhere Got to be birds flying higher in a sky more blue If I can dream of a better land Where all my brothers walk hand in hand Tell me why, oh why, oh why can't my dream Understanding sometimes strong winds of promise that will blow away the doubt and fear. If I can dream of a warmer sun where hope keeps shining on everyone, tell me why. Oh, everyone. My name is Simon Carver and welcome to Dagnall Street Baptist Church's podcast service for Sunday the 4th of December. This Sunday is the second in Advent and our text today is Isaiah's prophecy about a new creation. As well as some Advent appropriate music we have two songs about dreaming of a better world. Some notices. This Sunday's 10.30 on-site service includes a celebration of the Lord's Supper to which all are welcome. We will also be lighting our first two Advent candles. After the service, we'll be holding our December church meeting at 12pm. 
This meeting is open to all and we will be outlining our budget for next year and also showing a short excerpt from the series The Chosen, a special Christmas edition. The Church Magazine for December and January is now available from all the usual places, including online. It's a really bumper edition this month and has been split into three sections for online viewing and download. Cards for Good Causes are now selling Christmas cards in our green room, entrance via the door at the end of the car park. They're open at different times on different days. It's 10 till 3 on Monday, Tuesday and Wednesday, and 10 till 4, or maybe even 5, on Thursday, Friday and Saturday. And they'll be running until the week before Christmas. A percentage of the proceeds go to our church funds. Next Sunday's on-site service is our traditional family nativity, and there are parts for anyone who likes to come dressed as one of the characters. And now our call to worship. Give your love of justice to the King, O God, and righteousness to the King's Son. Help him judge your people in the right way. Let the poor always be treated fairly. May the mountains yield prosperity for all, and may the hills be fruitful. Help him to defend the poor, to rescue the children of the needy, and to crush their oppressors. May they fear you as long as the sun shines, as long as the moon remains in the sky. Yes, forever. May the king's rule be refreshing, like spring rain on freshly cut grass, like the showers that water the earth. May all the godly flourish during his reign. May there be abundant prosperity until the moon is no more. Praise the Lord God, the God of Israel, who alone does such wonderful things. Praise his glorious name forever. Let the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and Amen.
God of urgency and truth, at this darkest time of the year, we thank you for your light shown in Scripture, shown in those who seek not their own glory, but who point to you, shown in the ways you bless us in the ordinariness of our lives and in the big moments. You are the light that no darkness can overcome, and we thank you for inviting us to share your flame of love. God of humility, we are sorry for times when we behave as if life was all about us, when we show off all we do and hide all that we neglect, when we prot others down instead of building them up, when we dwell on what others have done wrong with hardly a thought to our own mistakes. Forgive us, we pray, and grant us the will to change and the courage to act after the example of John the Baptist, who lived out his calling with faithfulness and courage, always pointing to your Son, Jesus, in whom he trusted and in whose name we pray. Loving God, you promise us healing when we turn away from the things that harm us. You promise us a welcome when we leave behind the things that separate us from you. You promise us forgiveness when we find the courage to name our sins. For you are full of love and long to see us whole, living life to the full, generously and compassionately. Amen. A reading from the book of the prophet Isaiah, chapter 11, beginning at the first verse. Out of the stump of David's family will grow a shoot, yes, a new branch bearing fruit from the old root. And the Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. He will delight in obeying the Lord. He will not judge by appearance, nor make a decision based on hearsay. He will give justice to the poor and make fair decisions for the exploited. The earth will shake at the force of his word, and one breath from his mouth will destroy the wicked. He will wear righteousness like a belt, and truth like an undergarment. In that day the wolf and the lamb will live together. The leopard will lie down with the baby goat. The calf and the yearling will be safe with the lion. And a little child will lead them all. The cow will graze near the bear. The cub and the calf will lie down together. The lion will eat hay like a cow. The baby will play safely near the hole of a cobra. Yes, a little child will put its hand in a nest of deadly snakes without harm. Nothing will hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For as the waters fill the sea, so the earth will be filled with people who know the Lord. In that day, the heir to David's throne will be a banner of salvation to all the world. The nations will rally to him, and the land where he lives will be a glorious place. The cast of characters during Advent is fairly familiar. Before we get to meet Gabriel and the other angels the musical ones, and before we follow Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem where we gawp at the poor exhausted new mother alongside the shepherds and the wise men, before all of this we have to run the gauntlet of the prophets. In most Advent seasons I've looked at John the Baptist, but I'm giving John a rest this year. We have a picture of John painted for us by the writers of the Gospel stories, the wild-looking man living out in the desert. We have no word picture to help us imagine Isaiah, but there are definitely some clues that enable us to get a handle on who he was. 
from the beginning of the book of Isaiah, one of the longest books in the Bible, we know that Isaiah was active during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz and Hezekiah, who were all kings of Judah in the period after David and Solomon's kingdom had been divided into two separate entities, each with their own king. In the middle of this period, the northern kingdom was overrun by the Assyrians. This was seen as a judgment by God on their sinfulness, as was prophesied by Isaiah. The same thing looked like it might happen to Isaiah's homeland of Judah 20 years later, in 702 BC. However, Hezekiah, Judah's king at that time, kept faith in God's power to protect his land, and the Assyrians were miraculously held back. We know the beginning of Isaiah's prophetic ministry because of a passage in Isaiah chapter 6 that begins, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. From this we know one thing, and can be reasonably certain of another. The one thing we know is that Isaiah's call to proclaim God's word came to him in 740 BC, the year in which King Uzziah died. The thing that we can reasonably guess about is that Isaiah was a priest, in that he seems to have been in a part of the temple in which access was restricted to priests alone. We know that Isaiah spoke God's word to Hezekiah, and we know that Hezekiah died in 687 BC, and so it's possible that Isaiah's period of ministry was over 50 years long. During these years, Isaiah saw Israel's neighbouring kingdom fall to the Assyrians, and he saw his own city, Jerusalem, come within a hair's breadth of the same fate. Judah was in a precarious position, but Isaiah prophesied it would, by the skin of its teeth, survive. One of the problems we have in understanding Old Testament prophecy is that we know too much. We know what happened at the time the prophets were speaking, and we know what happened in the centuries afterwards. This knowledge can make it difficult for us to discern the context of the prophets' words and what their words meant to people who first heard them. The passage I read today is a case in point. It refers to a shoot budding from the stump of Jesse. What does this mean? Well, I'm going to try to answer this in three ways. Firstly, what did it first mean? Jesse is a character who appears only briefly in just two chapters of the Old Testament. He was the grandson of Ruth and the father of a number of sons, including David. When Samuel came to Jesse looking for the boy who would be king, David was the youngest son who was out in the fields, while the older, more likely suspects were paraded before Samuel. None of these was the one whom God had chosen. God, not for the first or the last time, had his eye on someone unlikely to be anyone else's choice. David grew up to slay a giant and later became a king. On the way, he was chased all over the land by his predecessor, King Saul, who feared the young upstart. But David was a successful warrior and a popular leader of men. As king, he expanded his nation's boundaries to their furthest point in the history of ancient Israel. And all this sprung from the root of Jesse. So what does Isaiah's prophecy mean? Well, we need to remind ourselves of the context in which Isaiah made this proclamation. Judah was less than half the size of David's kingdom. The nation was in no position to protect itself against foreign invasion. But there was hope, and Jerusalem would again know peace. And this is where our knowledge doesn't help us.
we know that not much more than a hundred years after God turned the Assyrians back from the gates of Jerusalem, another army, this time the Babylonians, were not held back by God, and it led to the city and the temple being sacked and many people being taken off into exile in Babylon. While we might have this disastrous event in our minds, Isaiah prophesied about Hezekiah, who was a good king, who followed the ways of the God of Israel and ruled over Judah in a time of relative peace. So for the first people hearing this prophecy, this promise of peace was fulfilled. But secondly, what did it mean to those who came later? I've just mentioned the period of exile, and when this prophecy was read at the time that the Babylonians had overrun Jerusalem, it promised something new. It promised a time when Jerusalem would be restored, and so it was. Around 70 years after the people were taking off to Babylon, the Babylonian Empire collapsed. Cyrus, king of Persia, became the new ruler over the region, and he allowed the Jews who'd been taken to Babylon to return home. Later on in the book of Isaiah, Cyrus is described as God's anointed one, his Messiah. This in itself is extraordinary in that we associate the title Messiah with Jesus, as Christ is the Greek version of the Hebrew word that we translate Messiah. But Cyrus couldn't be described as a shoot from the root of Jesse. However, there was someone else who could fit that description. When King Cyrus allowed the people to go back, he appointed Zerubbabel to be the governor of Judah. Zerubbabel was the grandson of the last surviving king of Judah, and so an heir to David's throne. Zerubbabel would never become king, but he oversaw the rebuilding of the temple, and under his leadership, new life did indeed come to Jerusalem. So we've seen what it meant on first hearing, and we've seen what it meant to those who came around a hundred years later. But finally, and maybe really most importantly, what does it mean to us? The fact that it is one of the readings that come in Advent suggests that we expect that it does have meaning for us. While for its first hearers and for its secondary hearers, it promised hope for the future. For those who have lived many centuries after the time, it promises something beyond that hope for the future earthly peace. This new hope comes in two parts in this passage. The first part is a hope that's found in a person. The second part is the hope that is promised in a new creation. Hope is found in the person of Jesus, who, like David, is God's chosen and anointed one. He is heir to David's throne, and he is God's Messiah. The New Testament makes it clear in many places the significance of the line of descent that Jesus can trace back to David. We can see it in the genealogies at the beginning of Matthew and Luke's versions of the, of the story of Jesus, but we see it also in the title, Son of David, with which Jesus was acclaimed. The first two verses in our reading fit well with the picture we have of Jesus in the New Testament. The next three verses take us into slightly different territory, and they act as something like a bridge to what comes next. While the spirit of wisdom, counsel and knowledge and fear of God can all be seen as traits that Jesus showed when he walked and talked in Galilee and then down to Jerusalem, it is harder to see what comes next as fitting the Jesus about whom we read in the Gospels, at least if we take these verses literally. 
he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. This description seems to take us into a new realm, a heavenly rather than an earthly realm. This is more the sort of language we expect to find in Revelation rather than in Matthew, Mark, Luke or John. And this leads us on to verses 6 to 9 in our reading. Here we have something that sounds like a description of a renewed creation. Paradise regained, perhaps. A return to the garden. Isaiah reminded his readers that they'd set their sights too low. He looked at the kingdoms of his day and saw that they were corrupt. For God's kingdom to be seen, there would need to be a fresh start. The tree that was the line of kings from David had been chopped down but there would come forth a fresh shoot. Isaiah told the people that they had become useless and decayed, like the short, jagged remains of a tree that had fallen. But suddenly, and perhaps unexpectedly, there comes a word of hope. Wait, Isaiah says, this won't always be. A shoot will grow up out of the stump. A branch will grow up out of the roots. Wait, our life together won't always be this way. The wolf will live with the lamb and the leopard will live with the kid. Natural enemies will live in peace. Someday there will be a world with no violence. The children will be safe. Those who have nightmares each night will be safe, all of them. Even the weakest and most vulnerable among us will not have to fear. We've grown used to a consumer society and to a political system where the people who have economic might or military power get their way. But God's appointed one will arbitrate for the poor. He will stand up for those in need and decide in favour of those who are meek. He will set human relationships in a right order. And once human beings are set right with each other, then things will straighten out in the animal kingdom too. There will no longer be anywhere a relationship where the strong devour the weak. Every living thing can lie down in peace and eat in leisure and play unafraid. We're pretty familiar with what we think we read in the creation story in Genesis chapter 1. God first creates the heavens and the earth, then the plants, fishes, birds and all the other animals. And God repeatedly declares that his creation is good. Finally, God creates male and female human beings in God's image. And God gives them dominion over the earth. They are to fill and subdue it. So far, so familiar. But we tend to overlook what God then says to the man and woman. See, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is upon the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food, and to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the air, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life. I have given every green plant for food. The passage concludes, and indeed it was very good. The message is startlingly clear. We were given vegetables and fruits for food, but so were all the other animals who have the breath of life in them. We are treated no differently from them. Not only are the creatures of the earth proclaimed to be pleasing to God, but neither animals nor we are given other animals to eat. The beginning of Genesis depicts a harmonious creation where no one, neither human nor animal, kills to live. While the first five books of the Bible are traditionally attributed to Moses, it is widely believed that this part of the creation story in Genesis was finally edited during the period when the people of Jerusalem were exiled in Babylon. 
They believe that not only was their present suffering not what God intended, but also that suffering is not God's intention for any of the rest of creation, human or animal. These were not the words of naive idealists unfamiliar with nature's harsh realities. They were people who struggled to survive in what we would consider a desolate wilderness. They fought lion and viper. They knew nature to be red in tooth and claw, just as they knew the harsh realities of defeat and captivity. Yet they were convinced that none of this was God's original intention. With the audacity of faith, they declared the present order to be fallen and offered a beautiful vision of a creation that was harmonious and happy. Of course, this picture of paradise didn't last. The man and the woman were cast out of the garden, and with their departure from the Garden of Eden, animals became a source of food and clothing for human beings. God is silent on this change until Noah and his family disembark from the ark. Then God said to Noah, Everything that lives and moves will be food for you, just as I gave you the green plants. I now give you everything. This was not a change in God's mind, it was a concession which the next verse makes clear. You must not eat meat that has its lifeblood still in it. This might seem a peculiar culinary requirement, but it is much more than that. God is saying to Noah that even the life represented by blood of an animal is to be honoured. The most obvious point of our passage in Isaiah 11 is that in God's new creation, animals and humans are not at war, but nor is the one to see the other as food. All life, whether human or animal, is sacred. We tend to see the Genesis story as one in which there is a pyramid with humans at the top, with a widening evolutionary base below. Yet the real division in Genesis is not between human beings and animals, It's between God and his creation. I guess that it's pretty easy to accept that people should live in peace with one another. We might say it's hard enough to cope with human suffering without worrying about the suffering of other animals. When we see the destructive ways of nature, it's easiest to say, they're just animals or that's just the way it is. In one of David Attenborough's nature series, people were rooting for one particular animal, a baby lizard, as it tried to escape from the swarm of snakes that saw it as lunch. We tend to be sentimental about animals without thinking through the consequences. If the cheetah doesn't catch and kill a wildebeest every so often, then the cheetah will die. In God's recreation of the world, all things will have their value, and all things will give, as only they can, glory to their Creator. When I was at school, I quite enjoyed O-level English Lit. We followed a syllabus that allowed students to read pretty much whatever they liked, and the exam asked very open questions, which we answered taking illustrations from whatever it was that we'd read. It was at that time I discovered George Orwell and read many of his memoirs, like The Road to Wigan Pier and down and out in Paris and London. We did have to be taught some poetry, and I remember just not getting it at all. One poem that I particularly remember not getting was God's Grandeur by Gerard Manley Hopkins. I really ought to look at it again sometime because I came across another of his poems which seemed to fit with this idea of the importance of all of God's creation. That poem's called As Kingfishers Catch Fire. 
Now, I don't profess to understand it all, but I feel I get it sufficiently to see that it is consistent with Isaiah's prophecy that actually sees beyond the now to a new creation. As kingfishers catch fire, dragonflies draw flame. As tumbled over rim in roundy wells, stones ring like each tucked string tells, each hung bell's bow swung finds tongue to fling out broad its name. Each mortal thing does one thing and the same, deals out that being indoors each one dwells, selves, goes itself, myself it speaks and spells, crying, what I do is me, for that I came. I say more, the just man justices, keeps grace, that keeps all his goings graces, acts in God's eye what in God's eye he is, Christ, for Christ plays in ten thousand places, lovely in limbs and lovely in eyes not his, to the Father through the features of men's faces. One day we will be perfect, but that day is a long way off. Now we live with the mess and confusion of life here, and we must, if not actually content ourselves with being imperfect, then at least accept that this is how it is for now. But we can too recognise in each living thing something of God and see the eyes of Christ in women and men's faces. We live in a world in which some people work for peace while others wage war, a world in which no lamb who values its life would lie down with a wolf. While we wait for the day when no animal sees another as lunch, that day when all loose ends will be brought together and paradise is regained, we wait and we hope. And as we wait, we can know that despite our imperfections and our failures, we are accepted and we are forgiven by a God who loves us.
Let us pray. Loving God, who filled your holy prophets with visions of grace and peace, grant us clear sight to see and understand your will for us. Loving God, may your church shine as a beacon of justice and right relationships in our institutions and our organisation. May we set aside our own desires and reflect your loving nature. Loving God, increase our faith so that our fears subside and we may be generous, befriending strangers and respecting those whose lives are different from ours. Loving God, we are a broken people. Save us from our weaknesses and teach us the meaning of enough. Loving God, warm our hearts, make us compassionate as we remember those who are ill and pray that they may be aware of the comfort of your presence. Merciful God, may we be a blessing to everyone we meet. Amen. Our last piece of music is a rather wistful song sung by the great American folk singer Pete Seeger. But first, a final prayer. Holy God, fill us this day with a great vision of peace. Strengthen our faith so that we may be unafraid to follow your path of trust and love. Send us out into our homes and neighbourhoods as messengers of peace and justice so that through us many may be drawn to you. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Last night I had the strangest dream 
I never dreamed before I dreamed the world had all agreed To put an end to war I dreamed I saw a mighty room The room was full of men And the paper they were signing said They'd never fight again And when the paper was all signed And a million copies made They all joined hands and bowed their heads And grateful prayers were prayed And the people in the streets below Were dancing round and round And swords and guns and uniforms Were scattered on the ground Last night I had the strangest dream Oh, oh. 